0: So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. How do you combat racism? I used to do it uh, back when I was in high school by just shouting at the people. Somebody says something racist and then I scream that they're a racist. And it never fixed anything, but I felt like I was uh, out there doing Christ's work. I was, you know, fighting the battle, dealing with the ugly, and uh, doing the right thing. As time goes on, you start to mill around in your life, and you wind up bumping into more and more bigoted people. And some of those bigoted people are people you actually care about. And uh, you wind up getting in the awkward situation where you, they say something, like, it's crappy. ...about Jews or something, and then you just find yourself kind of, like, not saying it. Like, kind of pretending like it didn't happen. And then kicking yourself later, like, why didn't I say something? It's... they're being a jerk. I should point out they're being a jerk, so they don't be a jerk around anyone else. Because you care about them. Um... But anyways, they, uh... I ran into, uh, my most recent racist... ...is the tree guy who cuts down my trees. He was here last summer, and he's cheap... And he's insanely clean. Like, you almost didn't even know they were there, except for the tree stump. And, uh, I've been told by many people that he's the best, uh, except that he's racist. So, the last time I got him, he, uh, he didn't say anything racist, and he was friendly and did all the stuff, and you can tell that he's the kind of guy who's gonna be racist, but he didn't say anything, and then he got the heck out of there, and, you know, after so many hours of work, it was great. And I was like, okay, great, but I had one tree left that I couldn't afford to get torn down, and that tree is totally going to fall in my neighbor's house. So this summer, it has to come down. I don't think it's going to last another year. And, uh... So, I had to call him again. And, uh, same runaround like last time. He never calls back and whatever. And then finally, he does call me right as I'm about to get in the shower. And I was naked. Uh, and I'm standing in my bathroom, having a half-hour-long conversation with him. And it starts out about trees. And then it also becomes about Black Lives Matter being a terrorist organization and it becomes about how uh, our tax dollars got to to pay for the damage that happened in the rioting, and also that the virus is fake, and uh, that masks are for babies. I agree with absolutely none of that, but I need him to tear down my tree. So if I go in the route of telling him, no, you're a jerk, and no, that's stupid, and what are you, another Fox News person, that's where you get all your information, because it sounds like you are from all the stupid things you're saying. Uh, but I didn't want to agree with them. I'm not going to sit there and go, oh yeah, yeah, a terrorist organization, and I don't want to get that going, I mean, he even started the conversation by saying, uh, I'm not racist, I'm just bigoted towards stupid people, and I was like, oh god, here comes the racism, because I've heard that before, uh, so in the end, uh, what do you do? Uh, my only option was to passive aggressively. Oh, it's my cat. Passive aggressively uh, talk him down. So when he brought up the Black Lives Matter being a terrorist organization, which you hear all the time uh, from Trump's people, yeah, you know, I could say, well, Black Lives Matter doesn't kill anyone. Uh, they're not out there actively creating battle scenarios. Or uh, (laughs) So uh, instead I said, yeah, maybe, I don't know enough about it, but, you know, us white people, we have the Klan, and uh, they kill people all the time. I said, so, uh, yeah, we also got neo-Nazis. I said, so, you know, if if, uh, black America has a terrorist organization, uh, we've got two, and they've been around for a long time doing a lot of damage. Uh, I think it all evens out, probably. It's probably nothing to be worried about. So, you know, I didn't feel good about myself saying that, but he said, oh, yeah, you know, that's probably a pretty good point. Yeah, for a guy like him to have a, suddenly a, a discussion where he says that I made a good point seems very strange. I a oh, well, I'm not a hero here, but I did at least not agree with him. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Then when it came with the taxpayer dollar things uh, to pay for the damage done, I said, well, white people... Every time their football team wins, they destroy their city. They turn over cars and light it on fire. And then the taxpayers got paid for that, too. They said, you know, at least with what happened in Minneapolis, uh, it was at least for a good reason. It wasn't just because white people are happy. And then he just sort of didn't say much about that. And then when he brought up the, the virus being fake, they said, uh, well, I know that that's not true, but I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, you're just telling me what you heard. Uh, so it's not like you're intentionally lying or something, but it turns out that that stuff's not really true. And he goes, "Well, I heard it on Fox News." And I said, "Yeah, you got to watch out for Fox News. You got to watch out for CNN. You got to watch out for MSNBC," and then I listed off a couple others. I said, "They all got angles they want you to buy into, and they kind of change the news so that you agree with them because they make more money that way." Now, I don't personally believe in this. I mean, maybe MSNBC, but uh, Fox News for sure. But the rest of them that I listed off, now. I'm just saying it to make him happy. And he goes, well, where do you get your news from? And I said, ah, you go to AP News. AP News is where all the other news organizations get their little news headlines from, and then they twist it around. I said, AP News is just straight, boring news, and you see the facts, and you see what's going on, and uh, there's no opinion there to sway you. And he actually said, oh, I'm going to look into that. And he wrote it down. And I said, oh, well, it's going to be kind of boring. I mean, it's just real news. It's not entertainment. So, yeah, if you can just kind of sift through it, just read headlines, if nothing else. And then he said, yeah, yeah, not a bad idea. And then uh, we talked some more about trees and got off the phone. So was it a victory for me? Uh, no. It's definitely a compromising of my own personal moral beliefs. But I didn't have to agree with him on anything, and hopefully I'll still get my tree torn down. So what do we learn from that? Uh... Moral compromise is just part of the realities of life, I suppose, because all the money that is going to have to get paid through insurance if that tree crashes on that house. Whatever, let's dive into uh, the next two chapters of uh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Like we always do, let's learn a couple facts about uh, Mark Twain. I forgot his real name. It's Boceus. Uh, Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Well, during his trip to the Mediterranean, he met his future brother-in-law, who in turn introduced him to his future wife, Olivia Langdon. He was married within a few short years to Olivia. Uh, though his wife's family, or through his wife's family, he was able to meet many famous people. Her family was wealthy and had liberal views on many issues of the day. He was married to Olivia for 34 years. Ah, uh, they had three children: Clara, Jean, and Susie. All right, so not the most exciting facts uh, in the world. So I went back to WhatTheFact.com and looked up Walt Disney. Oh, number one, the mystery. Of the last name Even the title Is written incorrectly Originally Walt Disney's last name was not Disney But Dislingy D-apostrophe-L-S-I-G-N-Y It belonged To his ancestors from France Later the name was changed As it is more convenient To plan a trip to Disney World (laughs) Nah, Where did the body go? Uh, there has been a flying rumor that Walt Disney's body is frozen in a cryogenics chamber, despite knowing that after his death, his body was cremated. Well, there you go. That's interesting. Uh, is schooling really essential? We always hear our parents telling us how important schooling is in our lives. Well, Walt Disney never graduated from high school. He left schooling at the age of 16. However, he won honorary degrees from various renounced universities. Renounced? It is. Renounced. Universities. The ones I talk of are as prestigious as Yale and UCLA. Wow, I love that the the author of that little segment uh, is literally stepping in and identifying themselves. Well, with that, let's dive into chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 21. Vacation was approaching. The schoolmaster, always severe, grew severer and more exacting than ever, for he wanted the school to make a good showing on, quote, examination day. His rod and his furile were seldom idle now, uh, at least among the smaller pupils. Only the biggest boys and young ladies of 18 and 20 uh, escaped lashing 18 and 20. Mr. Dobbins' lashings were very vigorous ones, too, for although he carried under his wig a perfectly bald and shiny head. He had only reached middle age. There was no sign of feebleness in his muscle. As the great day approached, all the tyranny that was in him came to the surface. He seemed to take a vindictive pleasure in punishing the least shortcomings. Uh, The consequence was that the smaller boys spent their days in terror and suffering and their nights in plotting revenge. They threw away no opportunity to do the master a mischief. But he kept ahead all the time. The retribution that followed every vengeful success was so sweeping and majestic that the boys always retired from the field badly worsted. At last they conspired together and hit upon a plan that promised a dazzling victory. Ah, they swore, and the sign painter's boy told him the scheme and asked for his help. He had his own reasons for being delighted, for the master boarded in his father's family and had given the boy ample cause to hate him. Oh, the master's wife would go on a visit to the country in a few days, and there would be nothing to interfere with the plan. The master always prepared himself, yeah, for great occasions, by getting pretty and fuddled. Uh, and uh, yeah, fuddled. all right. And the sign painter's boy said that when the dominie had reached the proper condition on examination in the evening, examination evening, he would manage the thing while he napped in his chair. Then he would have awakened at the right time and hurried away to school. In the fullness of time, the interesting occasion arrived. At eight in the evening, the schoolhouse was brilliantly lighted and adorned with wreaths and festoons of foliage and flowers. Ah, the master sat thrown in his great chair upon a raised platform with his blackboard behind him. He was looking tolerably mellow. Three rows of benches on each side and six rows in front of him were occupied by the dignitaries of the town and by the parents of the pupils. To his left, back of the rows of citizens, was a spacious temporary platform upon which were seated the scholars who were to take part in the exercises of the evening. Rows of small boys washed and dressed in an intolerable state of discomfort. Rows of gawky big boys. Snowbanks of girls and young ladies clad in lawn and muslin and conspicuously conscious of their bare arms, uh, their grandmother's uh, ancient trinkets, their bits of pink and blue ribbon and the flowers in their hair. All the rest of the house was filled with non-participating scholars. The exercises began. Ah, a very little boy stood up and sheepishly recited, uh, "'You'd scarce expect one of my age to speak in the public on this stage,' etc. Accompanying himself with the painfully exact and spasmodic gestures which a machine might have used, Supposing the machine to be a trifle out of order, but it got through safely, though cruelly scarred, and got a fine round of applause when he made his manufactured bow and retired. A little shamefaced girl lisped, Mary had a little lamb, etc., performed a compassion inspiring curtsy, and her mead of applause, and sat down flushed and happy. Tom Sawyer stepped forward. "'with conceited confidence "'and soared into the unquenchable and indestructible "'give me liberty or give me death speech "'with fine fury and fantastic gesticulation. "'Owen broke down in the middle of it. "'A ghastly stage fright seized him. "'His legs uh, quaked under him, and he was like to choke. "'True, he had the manifest sympathy of the house, "'but he had the house silence too, "'which was even worse than its sympathy. "'The master frowned and completed the disaster.' Tom struggled a while and then retired, utterly defeated. There was a weak attempt at applause, but it died early. The boys stood on the burning deck. Followed also, the the had come down and other declamatory declamatory gems. I'm not gonna go back and figure that one out. Then there were reading exercises and a spelling fight the fight, (laughs) the meager Latin class recited with honor, the prime feature of the evening was in order now, original compositions by the young ladies, each in their turn stepped forward to the edge of the platform, cleared their throat, held up her manuscript tied with a dainty ribbon, and proceeded to read with labored attention to, quote, expression and punctuation. The themes... I don't know why I just took a big pause there. I just My brain turned off for one brief second. The themes <laughs> were the same that had been illuminated upon similar occasions by their mothers before them. Their grandmothers and, doubtless all, their ancestor and female line clear back to the Crusades. Friendship was one. Memories of other days. Uh, religion and history. Uh, dreamland. The advantages of uh, culture. Uh, forms of political government com- compared and contrasted. Uh, melancholy. Filial love and heart longings, etc., etc. A prevalent feature in those compositions was a nursed and petted melancholy. Another was a wasteful and opulent gush of fine language. Another was a tendency to lug in by the ears particularly prized words and phrases until they were worn out entirely. And a particularly that conspicuously marked and marred them was the inveterate and intolerable sermon that wagged its crippled tail at the end of each and every one of them. No matter what the subject may be, a brain racking effort was made to squirm in it into some aspect or another as a moral and religious mind could contemplate with edification. The glaring insincerity of these sermons was not sufficient uh, to compass the banishment of the fashion from the schools, and it was not sufficient today. Oh, it never will be sufficient while the world stands, perhaps. There is no school in all our land where the young ladies do not feel obliged to close their compositions with a sermon. Now, you'll find the sermon of the most frivolous and the least religious girl in the school is always the longest and the most relentlessly pious. But enough of this. Uh, homely truth is unpalatable. Let us return to the, quote, examination. The first composition that was read and was one entitled, Is This Then Life? Perhaps the reader can endure an extract from it. In the common walks of life, with what delightful emotions does the youthful mind look forward to some anticipated uh, scene of festivity? Imagination is busy sketching rose-tinted pictures of joy. In fancy, the voluptuous votary of fashion sees herself amid the festive throng. The observed of all observers... Her graceful form, arrayed in snowy robes, is whirling through the mazes of the joyous dance. Oh, her eye is brightest, her step is lightest in the gay assembly. In such delicious eh, fancies, time quickly glides by, and the welcome hour arrives, her entrance into the Elysian world of which she has had such bright dreams. How fairy-like does everything appear to her advanced vision! Each new scene is more charming than the last, but after a while, she finds that beneath this goodly exterior all is vanity. The flattery which once charmed her soul now grates harshly upon her ear. The ballroom has lost its charms, and with wasted health an embittered heart, she turns away with the conviction that earthly pleasures ah, cannot satisfy the longings of the soul, exclamation point., and so forth, and so on. There's a buzz of gratification from time to time during the reading, accompanied by whispered ejaculations of "Oh, how sweet, Oh, how eloquent, uh, so true, etc. And after the thing had closed with a uh, peculiarly affecting sermon, the applause was enthusiastic. Then arose a Slim, a melancholy girl, whose face had the, quote, interesting paleness that comes of pills and indigestion, and read a poem. Two stanzas of it will do. Oh, Lord. A Missouri Maiden's Farewell to Alabama. Alabama, goodbye. I love thee well. Ah, But yet, for a while, I do leave thee now. Sad, yes, and thoughts of thee, my my heart doth swell. And burning recollections uh, throng my brow. For I have withered, uh, whoops, wandered through thy flowery woods. Have roamed and read near Tallapoosa's stream. Have listened to Tallahassee's warring floods. And wooed on Kuska's side aura's beam. Yet shame I shall not bear an awful heart. Nor blush to turn behind my tearful eyes. Tis from no stranger land I now must part. Tis to no strangers left I yield these sighs. Welcome and home were mine within this state, whose veils I leave, whose spires fade fast from the from me. And cold must be mine eyes and heart and teet. Ooh, T E T E. Is it pronounced teet? Like T-E-A-T? Let's find out. Uh, Oh, capital city. All right, so I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to pronounce it teat. (laughs) When, dear Alabama, they turn cold on thee. There were very few there who knew what teat meant, (laughs) but the poem was very satisfactory nonetheless. Next appeared a dark-complexioned, black-eyed, black-haired young lady who paused an impressive moment "'assumed a tragic expression "'and began to read in a measured, solemn tone. "'Oh, boy, another one. "'A vision, dark and tempestuous, uh, was night. "'Around the throne on high, not a single star quivered, "'but the deep intonations of the heavy thunder "'constantly vibrated upon the ear, "'whilst the terrific lightning reveled in angry mood uh, "'through the cloudy chambers of heaven, "'seeming to scorn the power exerted over its terror "'by the illustrious Franklin.' Even the boisterous winds unanimously came forth from their mystic homes and blustered about as if to enhance by their aid uh, the wildness of the scene. At such a time, so dark, so dreary for human sympathy, my very spirit sighed. But instead thereof, quote, My dearest friend, my counselor, my comforter, my guide, my joy, uh, my grief, uh, my second bliss and joy uh, came to my side, she moved like one of those bright beings, pictured in the sunny walks of fancies edened by the romantic and the young. A queen of beauty unadorned, save by her own transcendent loveliness. Oh, so soft was her step. It failed to make even a sound. But for the magical thrill imparted by her genial touch, uh, as other unobtrusive beauties, she would have gilded away unperceived, unsought. A strange sadness rested upon her features, Uh, like icy tears upon the robe of December, uh, as she pointed to the uh, contending elements without, and bade me contemplate the two beings presented. This nightmare occupied some ten pages of manuscript and wound up uh, with a sermon so destructive of all hope uh, to non-Presbyterians that it... It took the first prize. This composition was considered to be the very finest effort of the evening. The mayor of the village, in delivering the prize to the author of it, uh, made a warm speech in which he said that it was by far the most eloquent thing he had ever listened to, and that Daniel Webster himself might be well proud of it. It may be remarked, uh, in passing, at the number of compositions in which the word "beauteous" was overfondled, ugh, and human experience referred to as "life's page," it was up to the usual average. Now the master, mellow, almost to the verge of geniality, put his chair aside, turned his back to the audience, and began to draw a map of America on the blackboard uh, to exercise the geography class upon. But he made a sad business of it with his unsteady hand, and a smothered titter rippled over the house. He knew what the matter was and set himself to write it. He sponged out lines and remade them. But he only distorted them more than ever, and the tittering was more pronounced. (laughs) He threw his entire attention upon his work, now as if determined not to be put down by the mirth. He felt that all eyes were fastened upon him. He imagined he was succeeding, and yet the tittering continued. It even manifestly increased, and well it might. There was a garret above, pierced with a scuttle over his head, and down through the scuttle came a cat, suspended around the haunches by a string. As she had a rag tied about her head and jaws to keep her from mewing, as she slowly descended the curved upward and clawed the string. Well, she swung downward and clawed at the intangible air. The tittering rose higher and higher. The cat was within six inches of the absorbed teacher's head. Down, down, oh, a little lower, and she grabbed his wig with her desperate claws and clung to it. And it was snatched up into the garret in the instant, and with her trophy still in her possession. Oh, and how the light did blaze abroad from the master's bald pate, pate, pat, p-a-t-e. It should be pâté. Uh, it had a little thing over it. Oh, it's just pat. A uh, person's head. Oh. For the sign painter's boy had gilded it. That broke up the meeting. The boys were avenged. Vacation had come. Uh, note... The pretended compositions quoted in this chapter were taken without alteration from the volume entitled Prose and Poetry by a Western Lady, but they are exactly and precisely after the schoolgirl pattern, and hence are much happier than any mere imitations could be. Chapter 22, Tom joined the new order of cadets of temperance, not being attracted by the showy character of their regalia. Uh, he promised to abstain from smoking, uh, chewing, uh, and profanity, as long as he remained a member. Now he found out a new thing, namely, that to promise not to do a thing is the surest way in the world uh, to make a body want to go and do that very thing. Tom soon found himself oh, tormented with the desire to drink and swear. Oh, the desire grew to be so intense that nothing but the hope of a chance could display himself in his red sash kept him from uh, withdrawing from the order. Fourth of July was coming, but he soon gave that up. Gave it up right before he had worn his shackles over his 48 hours. He had fixed his hopes upon old Judge Fraser, uh, Justice of the Peace, who was apparently on his deathbed and would have a big public funeral. Since he was so high an official, uh, during three days Tom was deeply concerned about the judge's condition and hungry for news of it. And sometimes his hopes ran high, so high, that he would venture to get out his regalia and practice before a looking glass. But the judge had a most discouraging way of uh, fluctuating. Uh, At last, uh, last he was pronounced upon the mend, and then convalescent. Tom was too disgusted and felt a sense of injury, too. He handed his uh, resignation at once, and that night, the judge suffered a relapse and died. Tom resolved that he would never trust a man like that again. Yeah, the funeral was a fine thing. The, the cadets paraded in style calculated to kill the late member with envy. Oh, Tom was a free boy again, however, and there was something in that. He could drink and swear now, but he found to his surprise that he didn't want to. The simple fact uh, that he could took the desire away and the charm of it. Tom presently wondered if finally covered a vacation was the beginning to hang a little heavily on his hands. He attempted a diary, but nothing happened during these days, and, and so he abandoned it. The first of all the, uh, uh, again, it's like the N-word. I mean, it's still basically the N-word. It's just a nicer version of it. Minstrel shows came to town and made a sensation. Tom and Joe Harper got up a band, and performers were happy for eh, two days. Even the glorious fourth was in some sense of failure, uh, for it rained hard. There was no uh, procession in consequence, and the great man of the world, as Tom supposed, Mr. Benton, an actual United States senator, proved an overwhelming disappointment, for he was not uh, 25 feet high, nor even anywhere in the neighborhood of it. Ah, circus came. The boys played circus for three days afterward in tents made of rag carpeting. Admission, three pins for boys and two for girls. And then, uh, circusing was abandoned. A phrenologist and, ooh, mesmerizer came and went again and left the village duller and drearier than ever. There were some boys' and girls' parties, but there were so few... And so delightful that they only made the aching voids between ache the harder. Becky Thatcher I was gone to to her Constantinople home to stay with her parents during vacation. So there was no bright side to life anywhere. The dreadful secret of the murder I was a chronic misery. It was a very cancer for her permanency and pain. And then came the measles. During the two long weeks, uh, Tom lay a prisoner, dead to the world and its happenings. And he was very ill. Uh, he was interested in nothing. When he got upon his feet at last and moved feebly downtown, a melancholy change had come over everything and every creature. There had been a revival, ah, and everybody had got religion. Not only the adults, but even the boys and girls. Oh, Tom went about hoping against hope for the sight of one blessed, sinful face. But that disappointment crossed him everywhere. Yeah, he found Joe Harper studying a testament and turned sadly away from the depressing spectacle. He saw Ben Rogers and found him visiting the poor with a basket of tracks. He hunted up Jim Hollis, who called his attention to the precious blessing of his late measles as a warning. Every boy he encountered added another ton to his depression. And when, in desperation, he flew for refuge, uh, at last to the bottom of Huckleberry Finn, and was received with a scriptural quotation. His heart broke, and he crept home uh, and to bed, realizing that he was alone of all the town, and was lost forever and forever. That night there came on a terrific storm, ooh, with driving rain, awful claps, of thunder and blinding sheets of lightning, he covered his head with the bedclothes, and waited in a horror of suspense for his doom, for he had not the shadow of a doubt that all of this hubbub was about him. He believed that he had taxed uh, the forbearance of the powers above to the extremity of endurance, and this was the result. It might seem to him a waste of pomp and ammunition to kill a bug with a battery of artillery, But there seemed nothing incongruous about the getting up such an expensive thunderstorm as this, to knock the turf from under an insect like himself. By and by, the tempest spent itself and died without accomplishing its object. The boy's first impulse eh, was to be grateful and reform. His second eh, was to wait, for there might not be any more storms. The next day, the doctors were back. Tom had relapsed. The three weeks he spent on his back this time seemed an entire age. When he got abroad, at last he was hardly grateful that he had been spared, remembering how lonely uh, was his estate, how his companionless and forlorn he was. He drifted listlessly down the street and found Jim Hollis acting as judge in a juvenile court that was trying a cat uh, for murder. In presence of her victim, a bird. He found Joe Harper and Huck Finn up an alley eating a stolen melon. Now, poor lads. They, like Tom, had suffered a relapse. what did we learn Uh, uh, I don't how to tie this into what I said earlier where a man compromises his own sense of dignity in the face of racism Uh, we had the whole thing about the school and the poetry being really annoying uh, and then we had religion coming to town and now everyone relapsed yeah I can't tie it in well with that uh, thanks for listening And uh, I will hopefully be on time next week.